Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast. My name is Sophie Pittman, and I'm a postdoc researcher on the project, and I'm joined by my fellow postdoc. Hi, I'm Michelle Robinson. And today we're going to be talking about imitations and fakes in early modern fashion. And we're delighted to be joined by Tim McCall, the Associate Professor of Art History and Director of the Art History Program in the Department of History at Villanova University near Philadelphia in the USA. So welcome, Tim. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Michelle. This is, I'm excited to be here. We've had a lot of fun the last three days making some fake, fictive imitative objects, so I'm looking forward to our discussion. So Tim, could you tell us a little bit more about your area of research? Sure, of course. So I study mainly 15th century Italy, northern Italy, the the courts, Milan, Parma, Ferrara. Um, Increasingly, I'm interested in masculinity, um, intersections of masculinity, power, and fashion, what men wore, how men understood their bodies, um, how they were adorned, I'm interested too in the raw materials of fashion and sort and the, the the power relations that the production, um, the distribution of um, the procurement of these of these materials um, created in Renaissance Italy. And so this last three days, um, we've been taking part in a workshop on imitation materials. And uh, we've been trying to follow some recipes from 16th and 17th century manuscripts and printed texts that suggest ways of creating imitation amber, imitation pearls, some imitation damasks, um, some fake leopard fur. <laughs> and uh, we have, uh, we've enjoyed spending time together in dye kitchens and scientific laboratories. But uh, before you joined us uh, here in Helsinki, um, you'd already been doing some research and work on imitation and fake materials. So could you tell us a little bit about um, what you have been working on and the kinds of sources you've been using to do this work? Of course. So I've been working a lot on um, male clothing, like I said. So brocades, cloth of gold, gems, pearls, all the, the shiny bling, flashy, flashy things that aristocratic men and also women, of course, wore in particularly in the 15th century in Italy. And I, I realized quite how much of this was simulated or simulants or fictive um, imitations, fakes. And I think one thing we'll talk about is how we deploy these words, who was being deceived, who was in the know um, when they were using these, these fictions. And increasingly, I realized that a lot of these gems, a lot of these pearls were, were counterfeited. Somehow they were made. They weren't original. This is something that I think a lot of historians and art historians are increasingly aware of, right? The fact that we're having this conversation and, and these projects suggests, this with, particularly with the material turn, that we're interested in, in not just looking at representations of things, but really understanding the, the materiality of them. And particularly because these were so astronomically expensive and because they really manifested aristocratic power in Renaissance Italy, Silks and brocades, they're, they're essential to aristocratic power. And increasingly I realize that they can't all be gold. And this is something that conservators, material scientists, are beginning increasingly to understand um, and have over the last decade or so, that a lot of this cloth of gold was, as, as a lot of us know, silver, beaten silver, wrapped in gold. But a lot of it, too, was, was a form of brass, 
um, and, and which I've studied particularly in Milan, the, the production of um, a, a type of brass known in Milan as oricalco, and that a large portion, if not a vast majority, of cloth of gold um, probably wasn't beaten pure gold, as art historians have assumed, because that seems to be the case, but it, it absolutely isn't always the case, but it seems to be the case for most panel paintings produced um, from, from the 14th and, and early 15th century produced with, with beaten gold. Um, and there are a number of important sources like Cinino Cinini that talks about how you do beat a florin to do that. Um, I think art historians have kind of just assumed that that applies for, for clothing as well, but it, um, I, th I think it's, it's pretty clear that that's, not, that's no longer the case. And so when you've been studying this oricalco substance or um, indeed the, the negotiations that um, some of the elites that you work on are making in terms of sourcing materials and talking about what one another is owning and wearing, um, what kinds of information do you find and what kinds of information is missing from the sources that you wish you could know but, but is just not, not written down? And, and I, didn't tell, I didn't answer your earlier question about what sources I, I use, um, too. And a lot of it is ambassadorial reports. So it's always mediated through a representative, an envoy of some sort. In those sources, you you get a sense of conversations, but you don't hear the precise conversations. Right? You get a sense of negotiations and conversations, but but through an ambassador. Um, it's a lot of kind of secrets. It's a lot of, well, this person said this, and I, I can't tell you what, what, what this other person said. Um, but uh, uh, they're always interested in who's wearing what, how much velvets and, and, and other types of silks cost. Um, one of them, they're interested too in, in when are they using authentic or fake materials. So, for instance, I found one example that I think speaks to a lot of the conversations we've had in, in, in the last three days is when the Duke of Milan sends one of his, his embroiderers slash tailors down to, to Naples, where his sister is married into the Prince of Naples, and the correspondence back and forth between the Duke and Milan and his ambassador slash embroiderer in Naples is about what kind of brocades are being used at the court of Naples. Um, talking about the fact that they're using fake silver, or at least that's what the embroiderer is reporting back. Something that I think the Duke of Milan, who is a rival of the prince and the king of Naples, was happy to hear, right? Um, because, like I said, that these materials, the way that they shone, the way that they glittered, the way that people saw their lords dressed so splendidly, so resplendently, this luster, this luster of authority is what separated them from, from those who were being ruled. Um, and so that separated noble from lackluster bodies, literally. So we, we talked about, too, how that fictive materials are they're fundamental for supporting aristocratic rule. And so I think it's important to, to denaturalize aristocratic rule, to denaturalize patriarchy, to denaturalize how power differentials operate. Um, we need to pay attention to these sorts of things because even if they're fictive, we can't just write them off as, oh, well, these were false, false dukes or they weren't real princes, right? Because nevertheless, they were ruling. And these fictive materials had real, um, they led to real power. They produced real power, right? So in our project, we look at people from sort of lower status with maybe quite a lot less money than the elites that that you are researching. Can you say a little bit about the way that these aristocrats and rulers were valuing simulants and sort of fakes, if we want to call them that, especially because when we think about lower status 
people or people with less money, we often think, oh, they're just um, imitating those with, mm-hmm. with more. But we know that very wealthy people also had these kind of these objects. So could you say a little bit more about how they valued them and how they employed them and why? Yeah, and I think that's a fundamental, that, that's an important point, right? I think Renaissance fashion studies and fashion theory in the last couple of years has really thought intelligently about the ways that fashion doesn't only come from the top down. And so with previous assumptions being that the lower classes are only imitating or emulating the upper classes, we're seeing that fashion works in a lot of different directions. I reread Paolo Hotti, the, 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 the lead coordinator of this project's article, Cheap Magnificence, that was published a few years ago. Um, and she makes, the, she makes the important point that so much of you know, the historiography has thought about imitation as something only of the lower classes. But I, I think it is important to, to examine imita- imitative materials, sometimes deceptive, used deceptively, um, sometimes, sometimes not necessarily so, but in the upper classes, particularly those that were ruling, the ways I think is important, as, as I just kind of said, to think about the ways that the, the ruling classes deployed cheaper, fictive materials, again, to convince people who were ruled that they should be ruled and that those in charge should be in charge, right, to, to reproduce power. So it is, like I said, fundamental to understanding power relations. Um, and it's not something that is just, you know, it's something of minor importance. These were, these were fundamental and these lords were, were constantly trying to convince people that they themselves were dressed in and that their court was dressed in the most spectacular, the most expensive, the most costly materials. So another example that, that, that we discussed that I think is, is really telling is it's actually the same Duke of Milan, Galeazzo Maria Sforza, who sends a directive to the person who's in charge of getting clothing together for his court. And he's going to outfit his choir of, I think, 26 or 28 singers. And he, he spent a lot of money on his choir. He was competing with, with um, Netherlandish lords. He was competing with um, the Dukes of Ferrara, the, the, the princes, princes in Naples, for some of these singers. They were extremely important. He had just rebuilt um, the choir and, and, and decorated it with lavishly with blue and gold in his palace. And yet he tells the person who's in charge of getting the clothes for the choir to get them all outfits and tell them that, essentially tell them that you're going to use the most expensive red dye, tell them that you're going to use grana, but use something entirely different. Um, so clearly he is always trying to, as I think I say, skimp on splendor, or as, as Paolo would say, um, employ cheap magnificence. Um, this was fundamental to how, how these lords operated, right? And I think it's important not to just assume that they were always, you know, we make the mistake when we assume that they were always using authentic materials because they were lords and they, they wouldn't dare to do otherwise. Um, increasingly, we're aware that that's not necessarily the case. I think that's a, a really important point. And it's something that I've been thinking about um, from almost the opposite direction because I've been um, researching imitation textiles um, particularly looking at things like velvets that are not made of purely of silk, but they sometimes can be a combination of silk and wool or just wool or wool and linen and hemp. And I've been looking at them through the lens of our artisan inventories and um, other sources that tell us about this boom, this new um, emerging industry of mixed textile manufacture that, that spreads across Europe um, in the 16th century and into the 17th century. 
and really is one of the, the sort of key agents of fashion in the early modern period. And I think sometimes we assume that, that the elites have the, the finest stuff. They have the, the silk velvets and um, maybe the, the average man on the street, uh, the, the Sienese barber or the, the Florentine water seller, are going to have to consume the, the substitute imitation in order that they could uh, at least try to simulate a member of the elite. But actually what I've been finding is that these imitation textiles are being consumed across the social spectrum. So uh, members of the elite have mock velvets in their wardrobes right next to pure silks. And um, I think what, what they're interested in um, is this kind of cheap magnificence, but it's also finding materials that can get the, the visual effect, the luster, the plush nature of velvet, um, the kind of ocular effects that the loops in the, the woven fabric generate, whether in silk or just a, a nice wool or a brushed material. So, so I think it's a lot more complicated than something being fake or real, artisanal or elite. And that leads me on to um, a, a much wider question that, that we've been talking about and circling over the, the past few days, which is the language of imitation. I think a lot of the words we use have very negative connotations. So fake implies a binary of fake, not good, uh, or real, the, the, the better thing. But I'm not sure that that's always helpful um, for us when we're coming to these these sources. And so I wondered if um, we could talk a little bit about the, the words we're using and the words we find in our sources for fakes, imitations. We've talked about fictions, um, counterfeits. Um, Michelle and Tim, what kinds of words do you see in the sources you're looking at? Um, and, and what do you think that they they might mean for the people who are writing them down? I absolutely agree that I think that we need to be careful about these words and not just assume because it's not what we consider to be the most precious object, the most rare material, that it's th somehow therefore, you know, not as appreciated or doesn't do as, as important work. Um, I think it's always important to think about who is being deceived, who is in the know. So much of the, 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 the legal protections are for buyers not for audiences, right? Goldsmiths get in trouble when they misrepresent something to their buyers. It doesn't matter if people know if this is false gold or true gold. They don't, it doesn't matter if it's rock crystal or a much more precious stone coming from, from South Asia. What's important is that the person who's buying it knows. So who's being deceived is always, I think, worth, worth, worth asking. Because I, I also absolutely agree with your point that it's important to think about, at this time, these, as we all know here, these wearers, these consumers of goods were extremely sensitive to the materials of these objects. They understood the difference between wool and silk better than, than we might. They, they had some sense of, of color and color fastness and different sorts of dyes. But a lot of times what wasn't important, what was important was not wood was actually made of, but it was, particularly if you wanted to, to, to suggest something, to, to, to display something, what was important was what it looked like. 
So, and it, so much of it is mimicking or somehow giving some sense of luminosity or resplendence. So light effects and other sensory effects, how it sounded, how it reflected light, how, how, how the body moved. That's what was important. So a lot of times it didn't matter for, you know, for, for certain audiences, it mattered less what it, what it was actually made of and what kind of effects it produced. And I think, I think that's key. That's, that's an important way to think about imitative objects. And so many of them that we made over the last few days, from amber to pearls, right, they're all about, when we looked at them up closely, particularly the pearls that I made, they didn't look very good, right? And, and I think we, we all kind of said this. You looked at them, if you, if you look at them, if you hold them a few inches from your eyes, you're like, ugh, I don't know about this. This isn't gonna convince anyone. But of course, if you're 10 feet away, and, and you can just imagine that someone is walking away from you, it looks like a pearl. And if it's set in a circle around a gem, which may or may not be a true gem, which may be glass paste or some other form of, of glass or, or crystal, it still does the work that a pearl does. And a lot of times that's, that's more important than what it was actually made of. And I just want to add on to that because it, it was important about the way things looked, but especially when we think about things like gems and the colors of gems and the power of gems or the belief in the power of colors of gems. So if you want to have protection for blood-related sort of problems, it doesn't matter if you have a ruby or a ballast ruby or a piece of red glass paste. The belief that these can do the same things and have the same protective sort of qualities that are not related to the inherent sort of material that they're made from, but... The way that the color looks is important and the sheen and the brilliance, but also there are other kind of personal health and spiritual related uh, aspects of these things that are also really important at different social levels, of course. Absolutely, yeah. And l- let me make just one last point about language, which I, I, I wanted to, and I don't think I did, which is just that I don't think the majority of fakes were meant to be deceptive or were meant to be deceptive to all people. I think they were meant to deceive some, generally audiences, but they weren't, suppo- they weren't generally supposed to trick buyers. Buyers were protected in a lot of ways, but of course then they, they, would, they absolutely would have been deceived and, and fooled some of the time too. But, but I think us applying the terms fake and real makes the reality a lot less complicated than it actually was. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's definitely a lesson I'm taking away from our discussions is that we really all need to be very sensitive to the specific words used in our sources, whether they're ambassadorial reports, letters, inventories, manuscript or printed recipes. What, What words are they using? Is there a difference between a counterfeit imitation, a fake? Are these words used interchangeably? Or do they have specific meanings either for the person who was writing them down or whole cultures? Well, I think it's a really interesting and complicated problem, especially when you're dealing with such a broad range of sources. So in our project, for example, we're using recipe books, we're using inventories. We look at sumptuary laws. I've been looking at manuals on how to measure different kinds of goods as they come in and out of different places. So there's all kinds of different words in different contexts that themselves are different and they're referring to different things. So I think I just really agree that we have to be so sensitive to the words and the context in which the words are being used and the objects to which they're being applied. And I think we, we see in some sources that 
a material fiction, uh, a, a mimetic material, could be even more highly prized than the thing itself, the real, what we might call a real thing. And I wondered if, if either of you had come across any examples of that in, in your research, either Michelle on pearls or, or Tim, you'd seen it in terms of gold or gems, when, when an imitation might be prized more than a, than a natural substance. Well, something I read recently um, about pearls and particularly glass pearls in Venice, at the beginning of the 16th century, they requested that the citizens of Venice relinquish their glass pearls because they were threatening the sort of market for real pearls. So people were buying up these glass objects, not real pearls, but this was sort of new technology in, in terms of glass making and bead making. That was People were really excited about it and, and interested in buying it. And that was sort of causing a decline in what we sometimes think of as more precious material. I wish I had a better answer for that question, because I think it's a fundamental question. My sources don't really suggest that, but I, I think, you know, all of us are very familiar with a lot of research from the last few years that has shown particularly the, the you know, kind of artisan Artist, artisanal knowledge is fundamentally inquisitive about the natural world, and is this scholarship has very convincingly shown that this these precious simulant or fictive objects are valued for their for their rarity or are valued for the the, the difficult ways that they need to produce. Often, that in some ways mimic or somehow reveal something about the nat- their production in the natural world too. That there certainly are important values beyond just light effects and luminosity. So over the last three days, um, we have been making some imitation pearls, some imitation amber, some uh, fake leopard fur, uh, lots of different colors um, that are trying to imitate the the finest uh, dye stuffs, but with, with cheaper dye stuff materials, and some imitation damask. And um, I'd like to ask both of you, Tim and Michelle, um, what were your um, expectations um, when you read the, the recipes that, that I, I presented you with about, about what the results would be? Were there any surprises? Um, and maybe how, how do we now reflect on some of the things we made? Well, I was really excited to make the pearls, of course, and the amber. Um, and I think there were, in particular, with one of the pearl recipes that we made, there were some surprises. It was sort of a roller coaster ride for me, in a, in a way, because when I saw the recipe, I didn't really have a feeling one way or the other whether it would work or not. And then we started um, rolling these pearls and looking at this sad pearl in my hand. I thought, I'm not sure this is going to work. And then we applied silver leaf. And then I really thought, this doesn't look like a pearl, as Tim had said. And only when we sort of took some steps back and, and looked at a distance. I was actually really impressed with the way that it compared to, to a real pearl or what, what we imagined to be a real pearl um, from a distance. And so I thought I was really excited about that. And I'm also really excited about the amber that we made because I thought it might work. I ex- kind of expected it to work, but it actually worked even better than I was imagining or hoping. So it'll be interesting to have a sort of tactile interaction with it once it's it's dry and ready because amber was something that people were touching a lot so it'll be interesting to see if we can get a sense of of that through our 
imitation amber. Yeah, one of the things I was really excited about with these amber experiments was that they they mentioned not just that that you'll be able to create the the sort of visual effect of of real amber. So the recipe mentions that you'll be able to create some clear amber, but it also says that just like real amber, if you rub it, it will attract some some straw or dust. And so um, in researching this this recipe to try to work out, well, what does that mean? I, I discovered that, that you can give a, an electric charge, a static charge to, to pieces of real amber. And this is still something that jewelers will tell you now if you want to test if the, those amber earrings you've been eyeing up in, in the store are real. You can rub them and then you'll be able to attract some, some fur or, or hair or a bit of dust on the floor. And so the proof that this counterfeit amber, which is made with, with turpentine, so actually a very similar material to, to what real amber is made with, but it's not just a visual effect, but it's, there's a material proof, there's a test that you can do, um, so it will have the same kind of material properties as amber. So I thought that that, that was really um, exciting too, and unfortunately uh, we, need, we need it to set for six days in the sun, and we, we don't have six days of of Italian sunshine here in Helsinki at this time of year. So uh, so we'll have to wait to see whether that works. I'm quite impressed with the amber, to tell the truth. And it, you know, we haven't done the, the, the static test yet, but it's passed the lum- luminosity test for me. It really looks like you could set it into gold or, or brass or something, and it would look like a precious stone, the, the way that it kind of um, is saturated with light and would kind of it looks impressive I was also quite I, I was also very pleased with all of the and I learned a lot from the dyeing that we did the dyeing techniques I was impressed with what work we could do with matter and Brazil word we're not master dyers imagine if we had years and years of apprentice of apprenticeship imagine if we had years and years of you know be, better sense of this, these materials you really can do a lot with these reds and also by looking at the variety that we produce just in a couple of hours by mixing uh, materials, but also even just kind of um, re- uh, changing the order that we use these materials. You can produce very different colors, very different effects. Um, and so th- that was something that, that struck me. Another thing that, that struck me very much about textiles, um, something that I, I've known is that weaving is time-consuming, and it takes a lot of time. We tried to mimic damask essentially through a uh, fictive use of dyeing um, that, that, involves, that involves some sewing. And we spent maybe an hour, two hours on it. The results were not impressive. Certainly mine weren't. But it, it, it convinced me that you could do something if you knew what you were doing. It would take a lot of time. It would be extremely labor-intensive. Dozens, if not hundreds of hours which seems like a lot, but it would save you so much time as opposed to actual woven damask, right? So this was another um, lesson that I think was made clear by, to me by doing these materials. Even though they're well beyond my capabilities, I could imagine someone putting in hundreds and hundreds of hours and producing something that looked pretty good, um, saving a lot of time, even as time um, intensive as that, as that is. I think that's a, a really important point and an excellent takeaway and something that as a project and with our collaborators I think we're learning more and more is that we're never going to be able in our lifetimes to perfect 
craftsmanship to the standard of necessarily the early modern makers who had done multiple years of apprenticeships and then had to really push the limits of craft ingenuity to to make a living for themselves. Um, We can't expect to learn that overnight um, or in a few hours to simulate something that might take days, weeks, or even months to achieve. But we can, through at least having a go, through playing with these materials in in a concerted way, to try to do things that are historically appropriate, even if they're not historically accurate, find what what we, we often call proof of concept. We can see the, the material logic um, and the, the practices behind these processes and, and recipes, even if we're, we're not even getting close to the beautiful outcomes that, that, and the successful outcomes that, that craftsmen might have demanded of themselves and the consumers probably demanded of them too. Um, but at least in following these, these um, instructions, we can make close readings of the recipes and try to better understand what might have gone into making these imitative, fake, um, counterfeit materials. So now it's our job to uh, return to our desks and and write up the results of these experiments, um, which we'll share very shortly um, on the Refashioning the Renaissance website. And so you'll be able to hopefully find links below the podcast to some of these um, some of these results and stay tuned to the website for notifications of forthcoming publications by members of the team and our collaborators. All that remains for me now is to thank Michelle and Tim for joining me today in this conversation. Thank you very much, Sophie and Michelle. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode of the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast.